Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Today's episode is all about how companies, governments, and everyday people reckon with an economic catastrophe. The topic is the book, Crash Landing, the inside story of how the world's biggest companies survived an economy on the brink, obviously in reference to the March 2020 COVID lockdown period where the economy was shut down and everyone from CEOs to everyday people had to actually navigate those problems. Now, what makes this conversation so interesting is that we're talking about the COVID crash, but we're also having a broader conversation about how resilient our economy is, how CEOs and other leaders are capable of handling an economic shock, and how previous crises, such as the 2008 financial one, and now this one, are shaping how we're going to move forward. This conversation could be about COVID. It could be about a possible economic crisis caused by a Taiwan conflict. It could be about anything. The overall takeaway that I brought from this episode is that we need to focus on economic resilience, both in our personal lives, but also at a company and governmental level. Every crisis is going to have a takeaway, and that to me seems to be the one that's most core at the center of this one. Before we get into the episode, just a quick note, I sent this out on the Substack yesterday, but the realignment is switching back from three episodes a week to two episodes. I have to just humble myself and admit that it is harder and harder and harder to keep up with all the reading I need to do, but also just make sure I'm putting out consistent A's instead of C's and B's just so I could pat myself on the back of the head and say, you know what, you did three episodes a week. Good for you. So once again, we're back to the Tuesday, Thursday publication schedule. I'm only playing around with how bonus episodes that still reach that A level could fit into it, but I think folks are going to have no trouble keeping up with two a week, definitely considering everyone's listening needs. So I want to say a huge thank you to Lincoln Network for supporting our work. Hope you enjoy this conversation. Liz Hoffman, welcome to The Realignment. Thanks for having me. With a very event and news-driven book like this, I want to do a good job of picking a central idea slash takeaway for the audience that can kind of overlay the rest of the conversation. I think my takeaway would be economic resilience is just the most understudied and un under-focused area at companies, from governments, those different areas. How do we debate whether something is efficient enough versus is, is it resilient enough? How do you think about this topic and just this idea of resilience as you're writing this book? First of all, that's a great takeaway and I'm going to steal it because it's better formulated uh, by you than anything was in my head. No, you're totally right. And you know, the framing of the book is like this once in a century, hopefully, um, black swan event. But I, I mean, I think one thing I hope people take away from it is it almost didn't matter what the spark was, that the tinder was already there and the economy that had been built, which, you know, coming into 2020, by some measures, was the strongest we'd seen since World War II, was incredibly fragile and incredibly vulnerable um, to this kind of shock. And, you know, we're still living with that now, just the the incredibly bumpy exit from this, um, that, that you know, that DNA was, was firmly um, already already there. And uh, it happened to be in a test could be a conflict over Taiwan, that economy, despite all those numbers kind of fell apart. So just talk to us like how nice that picture looked if you're just taking the front page of the journal, maybe in February 2020, relative to how brittle things were revealed to be just one month later. 
Absolutely. I mean, high level unemployment was near record lows. Um, you know, the Dow was flirting with 30,000. I remember I worked at the Wall Street Journal at the time and we've had hats. There were hats and they had 20,000 and Dow 30,000. I mean, the stock market just kept going up and up and up. And Quick I think, thing. you know, the, you know, the Kevin Hassett joke, right? No. So Kevin Hassett was uh, Trump's, uh, I think it was his first chair of the CEA, um, Council of Economic Advisors. And he wrote this book in the late 90s called Dow 36,000. <laughs> and basically like the joke, and he was just, made, people made fun of him just for years and years and years. Um, and I, I think that's a little different here, but it's just so funny. Like, that speaks to like the moment we were in very specifically. Right. And I mean, the Dow, any economist or market expert will tell you, is actually sort of a stupid way to think about the stock market, which is itself not the economy, but is this sort of marker of confidence and and um, ebullience and and general sense that things are in the going in the right direction. Um, the other piece of this, I think, that we're now really just starting to understand was, you know, you mentioned the 90s. Starting in the mid and late 90s, you saw this emergence of a of a globalism a, 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 a political economic ideology where you saw nafta and the eurozone and um this sense that as china modernized uh its economy its politics would be liberalized too um that i think really now is is being revealed to to have been quite thin you know you're seeing this emergence of uh, economic nationalism, and even before 2020, Brexit and these political, geopolitical hotspots that were popping up. Um, you know, I think had it not been the pandemic, you know, much one of those would have sort of caught fire in a way that that got kind of washed out by COVID. Um, but no, I mean, I think you, the, the numbers were terrific, and there was also this sense that, like, what would people call it, the end of history, right? That we had somehow, you know, escaped the. Uh, achieved escape velocity from the sort of trials and tribulations and booms and busts, um, which obviously we didn't, you never can. So here's a question for you then, building on this theme of resilience. So given everything you've said here, and if you're reading the book, if I'm a, if I'm judging how resilient an economy is, I can't just say, okay, unemployment is in a great place. We're resilient. Can't say that. I can't look at the stock market and say, it's this, this, or that, therefore we're resilient. I also can't say, look at all these profits. I can't say that that's a signal. None of these things, to your point about 2019 to 2020, serve as key indicators for how resilient the economy is. So how should we actually measure resilience if we're trying to balance that moving forward? Well, it's incredibly hard to do because a lot of those metrics that you just mentioned, they're trade-offs, right? Like it can't be that every company is supposed to operate with a year's worth of revenue sitting on the on the sidelines. It's just not that's not how the world works and certainly not how the market works. Um, but you know, when you talk about that trade-off between efficiency and resiliency, you know, with the huge technological you know, gains that have been made in the last couple of decades, you've started to see the rise of this just-in-time efficiency, which is to say that when Toyota is making a car, they don't want the bolt that screws in the, the rivet to be at the factory assembly line one second before it's needed, right? Apple, I mean, their, their two main advantages over many years are making beautiful products that people love, but really just squeezing every sent out of their supply chain um, and turning over that inventory quickly. And the opposite of, of um, that kind of brutalist efficiency is resiliency. There's not a lot of fat baked in. And honestly, like I would like to say, I think one lesson coming out of this will be that companies will be a bit more, at least financially defensive. I don't think so. I mean, 
you know, the market forces are what they are and, and God help a CEO who sort of is seen as sort of fat and lazy and, and kind of, you know, putting money away for a rainy day. No one wants to see it. So I, I fear that this is a lesson that, you know, will be sort of fake learned for a couple of years, but like the lessons coming out of 2008 about, about leverage and, you know, synthetic instrument, they all come back because there's a demand for them. Okay, so we'll get to the 2008 thing in a second, but I love the way you just framed that. Um, on one level specifically, you said if we a CEO had acted defensively, it would have been thought of as a good thing. So take yourself back to 2019. You're still at the Wall Street Journal. How would you have written about, let's say, a Ford CEO who is obsessed with, okay, let's make sure this supply chain could last for a year. Let's not worry as much about the hot, sexy new thing around the corner. Let's just make sure the status quo is just maintainable. I get the sense that they would have been seen as kind of like weird. They would have been, they wouldn't have been rewarded at the stock market level. The board would have had questions. How would a CEO behaving the way we in retrospect wish they behaved been received in the press, especially? Oh, well, press plus just their board too. It's not as if you're at the core of everything. No, I wish we made it so. Um, I mean, the truth is they wouldn't have been in the job for very long. An activist hedge fund would have showed up and said, your margins are terrible. Let's take Ford, for example. Your margins are half what GM's is. Like, you need to figure this out or we're going to fire you. I mean, they just would not have survived. Um, and so there's this incredibly competitive dynamic that just, you know, look, I, I always am a little bit skeptical um, of people who sort of think the market is evil. It isn't, but it's it's efficient and it there is an invisible hand that that weeds out underperformers and sort of incentivizes um people to uh to reach for efficiencies. And there are huge externalities of that, um, which is why the government exists and why, you know, a lot of those there's regulation and there are, there are backstops. Um, but I think the, the real challenge is, is that there's a price for everything and, and, um, you know, the, the market does what it does and it will chew up anything that, that kind of resists. It is a, what is it? A movable, an unstoppable force and an immovable object. Uh, the market wins every time. Yeah, and it's interesting when you brought up how there was this end of history idea. Um, I come from the foreign policy space, so I was trying to think of how for, how end of history style thinking would apply to the economics and finance space. But the obvious answer, based on what you're saying, is in the 2010s, the equivalent of the end of history existing would be there just are no trade offs. You're not thinking of trade offs. Things are just good. They continue to go good. They'll continue to go well. Um, I'm a podcaster, not a writer. Um, they continue to go well. But then at the end of the day, you're not considering, hey hyper-efficiency equals uh, a lack of resiliency. So is the solution there for, I don't know, the government to regulate, the government to say, hey, this, this, or that critical industries, you actually have to legally have this backstop requirement for production, this, this, or that would maybe incentivize different behavior and not force CEOs to act against their own company and their own interests um, and be punished for doing so. Would that be a means of addressing this gap? There's two basic ways I think you could you could address it. One is what you just said, and the answer is, of course, and that's what happened to the banks after 2008. <laughs> they said, you guys are too important. You are um, too prone to screw-ups. The incentives are so bad that we are going to force you to you know, meet all kinds of capital requirements and liquidity requirements. And you know, say what you want. Maybe everyone still loves to hate the big banks, but I covered them for 10 years, and they are dramatically different institutions from a risk perspective now than they were in 2008. Um, 
And honestly, I, I approached this book sort of from the finance perspective, thinking it might be a financial crisis, and it wasn't. Right? The banks ultimately actually held up incredibly well, but it was a it was a it was a crisis in the physical economy, not the sort of synthetic one that blew up in 08. The other, though, is like, okay, are there some incentives? Is there some desire for a type of company like the one that you just mentioned? I tend to think not. But I had some discussions early on with. Um, uh, an executive at one of the, the major stock exchanges, and they run these indexes. So, right, you can think of the MSCI or the NASDAQ or the um, the Dow Jones, they're collections of companies. And I said, well, is, is one thing coming out of this, will we get like a NASDAQ defensive 50? And these are, these are 50 companies who have chosen deliberately to make some trade-off between profits um, and and safety and, and resiliency. And maybe... If you're a pension fund and you've got a hundred-year investing horizon, maybe you want to put one percent of your assets in that bucket, in the same way that you diversify across real estate and stocks and bonds and commodities. Maybe it was a fun idea, and I thought there was a moment where it might happen. I don't really see it anymore. But so the other way, right? You can, you can, the government can force you to do that. I tend to think that the financial sector is important and risky enough that it deserves it. You start doing that across the economy and you end up, it's not a capitalist society anymore. Um, and you end up with a state-controlled economy and those just tend over the long time not to work. But the other is, is there some kind of market force that actually where you're sort of scratching an itch? Maybe. I think the uh, other thing that comes to mind here is I want you to really take us back to that post-2008 moment because I think the the way you tell the story and I like how you, fo- you told the story through the lens of finance because we we can't understand 2020 without understanding how the financial sector and you know big corporations responded to basically let's say 2009 2010 2011 so how did what what basically happened how did the how did the how did the markets and industry climb out of like the hole there and then how did that where did that leave us in February of 2020? Yeah, it's actually a story that's sort of best told not from the not from the seat of a, a CEO, but from uh, the central banks and, and policymakers in Washington. Because coming out of two thousand eight, they were way too slow to act. Um, you know, one we can talk about it more, but one reason I think things here turned out as well as they did, which is that the government did in about six weeks what it took them nine months to do in two thousand eight. You mean bailing out? You mean bailing out institutions and stuff? So uh, fiscal stimulus, so checks to everyone, actual help for people, um, bailouts of huge industries like uh, like the airlines, small business support, and then a lot of the technical um, market backstops that were put in place, these huge liquidity facilities that would kind of unclog the market and, and make everyone calm down a little bit. You know, it took them six, nine, 12 months to do all of that in 2007, eight, and nine. They did it about six or eight weeks here. Um and, and by the way, what they never did in 1929, which is why that recession, the depression lasted 10 years instead of a year and a half. Um, but, what ex- you know, quick, up- quick thing, what explains yeah, sure. the difference in those response times? Because you said something earlier when you were comparing like the real economy versus like the more digital and ephemeral economy. It seems like the explainer of why that happened so quickly is just at the end of the day, what needed to be done was just more tangible than a conversation around like Bear Stearns in 2007. Is that... Or, or or what was happening in 1929 where there's a, you know, the stock market, not the stock market is new, but like that style of like capitalism is just newer. So you have lots of a framework. How would you understand the different timescales? I think it's three things fundamentally. One is that the uh, in 2008, the problems were so complicated 
I don't really mm-hmm. think you want to get drawn into a deep discussion about, you know, synthetic CDO squares, but like they, the problems were incredibly opaque and complicated. And even smart people in Washington were baffled by what had gone on. Two is, is sort of the political narrative setting, which is no real villain here, right? To the extent the book has a villain, it's the virus, right? Which is not, um, sure, no one loves the airlines and like no one loves stock buybacks. But at the end of the day, you could not point and say, this is Wall Street's fault. Uh, And the third is that we do iterate, we get better at this. And the lesson out of 08 was the Fed, the government has this natural role as the lender of last resort. They're going to get there anyway. You might as well get there fast. Um, and so I think those three things really explain the difference in the responses. And, you know, two years after, you know, 2008 into 9, 10, 11, even into 12, we were in like a real economic funk. And yeah, the economy is strange right now. We may be in a technical recession. We may not. But like, it's fundamentally much healthier than it was the same time frame after uh, the collapse of 2008. So then that takes us back to, we basically left the storyline of the past 10 years in 2012. So you're now recovering what then happens in the stock market with these companies of profits, mergers and acquisitions, all those different categories. So the original sin of all of that, and it's a very defensible policy decision, was that money got free. The Federal Reserve set interest rates to zero for a long time. And what that does is it pushes people into riskier investments. So if you're a pension fund and you need to return X amount in 30 years for these people who are going to retire, you say, all right, like there was a time I could buy treasury bonds, the safest piece of paper on the planet and get four, five, six, seven, eight percent. Not bad. Now I get zero percent. So instead of doing that, I'm going to have to buy stocks, which pushes the value, the price of stocks up, which is obviously what you saw over the last decade. And then the people who used to be like, well, I'll buy stocks, they think, oh, God, now I have to buy risky stocks, so I'm going to go buy tech stocks. And so you saw this huge explosion of risk. Um, and very little of that risk was being priced in, which is to say, and I tell this story in the book, this investor, Bill Ackman, hedge fund investor, who in February of 2020, a little bit of a hypochondriac, so he's been kind of like, kind of freaked out about this thing for a few weeks, but he's looking at the markets and he says, this doesn't make any sense. The spread, the gap between what investors, bond investors are charging Exxon, McDonald's, right? These blue chip companies for debt, they're they're assuming they're about as safe as the federal government, which to be clear, they're not. And they're assuming that these riskier, lower rated companies are about as safe as a AAA rated company, which again, they're not. But there wasn't a lot of risk being priced in. Everyone was just throwing money at everything. And you know, basically the reason that happened is that the federal government trying to protect the economy to grow it coming out of 2008 and nine made money free and money is not free. And so the incentives were uh, to bake in risk and leverage at all levels of the system, which is why it unwound so quickly. Was there an alternate path out of the 2012 that didn't go as far as the Federal Reserve did? In the early years, I think not. You know, the way to to jumpstart a sluggish economy is to encourage investment, encourage banks to lend, encourage people to start businesses. And to do that, it's really the provision of credit. You have to be able to borrow. Um, You know, the 1929, that that Great Depression started with a stock market crash, but it was the lack of, of people's ability to borrow that made it into you know, a really generational event. Um, <clears throat> you know, the Fed at some point in the mid-2010s realized that this had gone on too long, that the market was too dependent on this just ocean of money kind of lubricating all of the gears, 
making people very undisciplined about risk. And they tried a couple of times. They made sort of head fakes towards raising interest rates and kind of turning off the spigot. And every time they did, the market freaked out. Remember, it was called the taper tantrum. The market just utterly panicked. And um, there's an argument to be made that the Fed shouldn't have cared and should have stayed the course and started to to uh, wind the party down and call it 15, 16, 17. They were unable to do it or unwilling. So I think the next question that comes from this is, I'm at a narrative level, and you're you're an author now, um, beyond just like writing for the for Semaphore and the Wall Street Journal. So I'm curious what you think about this. I am obsessed with the idea that once we introduce a word or or, or a concept or a topic, it actually shifts the way we think about things. Um, so now that we have the idea of a black swan event. And we're talking about black swans. Be prepared for a black swan. And now we know that, well, basically every 10 years, there's a black swan event. There's an Asian financial crisis. There's a dot-com bubble bursting. There's a 2008 financial crisis. There's a COVID crisis. Why have we not just priced in that there are black swans and everyone just kind of act accordingly? Because now, now that the ideas in our head, let me put it this way, like when, when the forget the book, but when the, the 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 movie version of The Big Short comes out in 2015, how can people not just like watch that and be like, okay, cool, like the whole world could collapse just like that. Let's be ready for that. But what, what do you think about that like as a financial reporter? Uh, I share your frustration. <laughs> um, and there's actually an argument that to be made that these events, whatever color swan you want to put on it, are actually becoming more frequent, that the world is a more turbulent and unpredictable place. Um that it used to be. And part of that is that the market, the speed of the market is so much faster. So these things get mm. amplified. There's what does so that much coverage. So what does speed mean? Yeah, it used to be that like if you wanted to buy stocks, you called your stockbroker and they said, okay. And then they went down to the exchange floor and they held up a couple of pieces of paper. And that's how and you know trade took what it took starting in the 70s and 80s. That started to get incredibly fast. And you've seen the rise of these, I call them like FOMO trading models, which is like mm-hmm. It's it's not a it's not a human being say I th- I think that Chevron is a good buy today. It's them reading a bunch of s- like signals in the market and saying, oh, other people are buying this, I should buy it. It's it's all based on momentum. Very little of it is based on a technical analysis. And so what that means is that you know usually markets had a self correcting mechanism. A stock would go way up, and people would look at it and say, well, that's overvalued. I'm going to sell it. Right. Alternatively, it would get oversold. People would say, that's cheap. I'm going to buy it. There was a a balancing mechanism. Now, so much of of financial markets are based on momentum that actually things become accelerated. And so that means that the buildups get more dramatic and then the unwinds happen very fast. Um, So, you know, part of that I'm sorry, what question was I answering? I've totally lost track of. No, no, I, 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 I honestly, um, I was basically asking about like how we, how we got to 2020, but it's okay. Cause like, I think that this is just, and this is why I really enjoyed the book. I think this stuff is very impenetrable. So I think more than usual in any conversation, it's important to understand what, what speeding up like actually means. Cause like, what, what actually is that? Um, so here's a, here's a refocusing question then. So spent a lot of time getting to the actual COVID crash. I think that's important because I think so much of the financial story here is built up um, in that 2010s period. And now that we're emerging from the COVID bit, I think the world looks much more like, let's say, 2010 or 2011 than it looks like March 2020. So people should be thinking accordingly. But one last question on this, and I thought you wrote about this really well. Um, You wrote about how, despite all of those awesome metrics we gave at the start of the episode, 
things actually were not as great as they appeared. We're talking about wage growth. We're talking about the presence of like middle-class jobs. Can you talk about the understudied, undercounted side story of 2010? Because I think another question that comes from this too is, if everything was so great, why were people so angry? The 2010s were such like an economically angry decade. If the, that if the, that if, you know, we're doing better than the 90s, Hillary Clinton should have been president. That didn't happen. So there must have been something else going on too. I'd love for you to talk about that. Yeah, two things, I think. I mean, one is um, we talked a little bit about the the sort of fraying of that global compact, right? Um, you know, the sort of the, the, the promise in the 90s and early 2000s of free trade was, yeah, it'll be a little bumpy, but it's better for everyone and new jobs will get created. And they just didn't, right? So that story was starting to wear thin, which is where you saw the rise of like Trump economic nationalism, America first, Brexit, which predated the pandemic. You're totally right. Um, the other though, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, was I, I think it's helpful to think of the economy in 2019 as really playing out on a split screen. Um, you have, again, a very thin veneer of incredibly encouraging metrics. Um, but the value of most of that is accruing to a small group. Most of the stock market is owned by fewer than 10 or 20% of people, obviously overwhelmingly wealthy. So when you see the stock market go up for 10 years, well, that wealth isn't isn't evenly shared. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly uh, concentrated and you've seen the rise of income inequality. But also, you know, things that were, you know, for a lot of that decade treated as liberating and futuristic, things like the rise of the gig economy, right? And and do your job from anywhere. And we're going to have 15 careers. And of course, I, I'm, I don't know about you, I'm sort of a, an older millennial, going to have 10 careers by the time I'm done. Things that were, that seem to sort of herald a new economic age, we're actually just shiny packaging for a huge portion of people who are just less tethered to the economy. So you mentioned the just steady and massive decline in union membership, um, the rise of of kind of the freelance gig economy. Sure, it's great. Like you can hop in your car and do some Uber work for a couple of hours, but like that doesn't come with a 401k. That doesn't come with a pension. It usually doesn't come with healthcare. And so a lot of those uh, costs just got shifted Um to the public sector uh, and really baked in a lot of um, vulnerability to a huge portion uh, of the working public. Perfect setup for actually getting to March 2020 now. So let's talk about another narrative choice. You're telling this story through the lens of modern CEOs in a bunch of these different categories. So could you just, A, like answer why you think the CEO vantage point is one of the best ways to tell this story, and then B, talk about some of the industries that you covered and why you think they were particularly indicative of the story you're telling about how we reacted um, to the COVID crash and what it said about the economy as a whole. Yeah, it was a funny book to write. I mean, it's my first one, so um, take that with a grain of salt. But most reporters cover a big story for some number of months and then think, oh, I should, there's a book here, right? Um, this was not that. This was like early in a process that was clear there was going to be something here. But also, I'm I'm a Wall Street reporter. I'd never covered airlines or hotels, um, and I really wasn't even a macroeconomic reporter. I was a, I was I was I'm, I'm like a money monkey. People tell me their money mm-hmm. secrets. And I write about them, but no. But this was I, I really I, I thought it was important to try to capture this moment, and to to take a swing. Um, I, I mean, it, it, I think you just have to take yourself back there. It was such a weird story. Like I. It's so easy now to look back and criticize the decisions that were made, but 
and I say this early in the book, I, I remember vividly sitting on a flight coming back from a family vacation in Florida on March 8th. And like three days later was my last day in the office for two years, more or less. So, I mean, just the speed with which this all happened. Um, look, I'm a business reporter at heart. And so you tell the story that you think you're best positioned to tell. I think there would be a fascinating companion book of this, right? From the, the point of view of of an hourly worker um, or, or somewhere else in the economy. My former colleague, Nick Timoros, wrote a terrific book about this period, um, entirely set in the central banks um, and treasury, which is an incredibly good vantage point. Um, but I think if you're trying to tell a really 360 kaleidoscopic story, you have to find corners of the economy that came into this differently with different uh, with different pasts, with different profiles, with different kinds of people leading them. Um, and uh, and so I spent the first couple of months just trying to figure out, okay, like who's my cast of characters, right? You know, a book that mm -hmm. I so admired, Too Big to Fail in 2008. It was like, oh, it's, it's, the, it's the CEOs of the Wall Street Banks. These were all the people who were there. This book could have gone a lot of different directions. Um, I knew I wanted to tell the finance story because it's one that's frankly near and dear to my heart. Uh, I knew the airlines were just a crucial part of the story and would be a fascinating window into the politics of all of it and the sort of moral hazard hand-wringing that continues to happen. Uh, I wanted a tech company because I wanted something that that had um, Airbnb was such a an obvious one because they'd come into 2020 thinking they were going to go public and take their their place in the pantheon of the kind of Silicon Valley giants. And then I also wanted a, a legacy company that was being disrupted, which is how I ended up um, looking at Hilton. Um, and then, you know, I just kind of I, I found interesting stories where I found them forward. I remember it's easy now to look back and kind of roll your eyes, but there was a real moment in COVID where this stuff was incredibly earnest and moving and kind of powerful. And I, I didn't want to lose that in the, in the sort of cynical dust that has settled and, and you I mean was, building the building, shutting down the the line and building ventilators. Absolutely, That's you, yeah. So the like, this is you know, this is the you know moment where business and government come together, like in World War II. Like there, there, there was that specific moment. There yeah. was that yeah. moment, and I and I, you know, as a my professionally, I'm sort of skeptical of business and cynical. That's my job, but I don't know. I just I, I remember at the time being deeply moved by that story, and the more I reported it, um, that never went away. And I thought that was an important thing to remind people of. of that feeling of leaning out the window and banging the pots for healthcare work. I mean, it all feels a little sort of saccharine now, but it was a formative part of my pandemic experience. And I, and I think a lot of people's. Yeah. So uh, I want folks to purchase the book, go to our bookshop. Amazon also works too as a, as a backup that doesn't get me a commission as much. Um, but I want to focus, so folks should go there for like the anecdotes and the storytelling, which is really, really, really enjoyable. But I would love for you throughout the rest of the episode to really talk about these specific industries, but as categories, because that's just fascinating. I loved your chapter explaining Delta in 2019, um, the streaming streaming plays, um, robotic, like mecha suit assist for people like, raising luggage. Tell us just about airlines. Like, Give us like the picture of airline. If we, if we talked about the 2010s economy, talk about like peak 2010s airlines and then maybe like how they got through and where they are now, which people are probably experiencing with the various travel disasters. What startup airlines would go to Airbnb and hotels, so on and so on and so forth. Let's go to airlines first. Sure. Um, yeah, I, you know, airlines actually is is the one industry where I I really spent time looking at more than one company because they were actually they had this incredibly diverse 
sort of set of baggage, um, no pun intended, that they brought in. And so, yeah, you mentioned Delta, which, you know, was the best performing U.S. airline um, for years. You know, the I think had had sort of seen itself as having achieved some kind of escape velocity from the boom and bust cycle of airlines. Airlines reliably, for one reason or another, go bankrupt like every 15 or 20 years. It's a terrible business when you put it's it the way you describe business. it. And, and look, they don't do themselves any favors with public opinion, but it's an incredibly capital-intensive, risky, complicated business of flying gigantically expensive hunks of metal around and never crashing. So like, I don't know. I, <laughs> I have some sympathy <laughs> for that job. Um, but yeah, Delta really saw itself as having sort of jumped, it leapt out of that world entirely. And they opened with Ed Bastian, the CEO of Delta, speaking at the Las Vegas Consumer Electronics Show, the sort of mecca of gadgetry and and you know slick presentations and it's a weird place for an airline ceo to be in fact he was the first one to have given a keynote speech and yeah he's trotting out all of this next level stuff they have these biometric retinal scan uh screens that will show you your itinerary when you look at them because it knows in your language i mean really super interesting stuff and they was positioning their seat back entertainment systems as a streaming platform to rival Netflix. Um, I mean, just really. Uh, I have to say the the quote I enjoyed that you described quote, um, uh, it's easier to cry in the air. So there's an opportunity for, uh, you know, pitch tear jerkers for Hollywood. <laughs> he, 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 he hundred percent, he seriously made that argument. Um, and, you know, I think it was just a reflection of how, you know, what a champagne decade that industry had had. The the bankruptcies, the post 9-11 bankruptcies of, you know, the 2000s were behind them. You know, the last big restructuring had been uh, American Airlines, which came out of bankruptcy by go by merging with U.S. to make the American that we have today. Um, you know, they had really ridden this, this wave of, I mean, huge international travel. The world was incredibly interconnected in a way it had never been before. Um, you know, had a fairly benevolent energy environment. I mean, it was just, it was just a good decade. And um, it's, it tells you how short memories are, even at the level of people who are paid to have long ones, that an industry that is so prone to just chronic screw-ups and chronic um, collapses could get that self-delusional. And actually, before I even, before you even read the book, the the sort of opening page has two quotes, one from Winston Churchill and the other from the CEO of American Airlines, Doug Parker, who said, swear to God, said in 2018, I think 17, 18, I don't think we're ever going to lose money again. These are words that came out of his mouth um, and should just tell you kind of where, where the industry was coming into the pandemic. You know, it's so wild just reading the book and also hearing this if you, I, it, I think this is, the, I, I like the way you wrote it, but just, I'm reading this, I'm like, man, like 2010s, like they're awesome. The 2010s did, just did not feel awesome. I'm just thinking about that on a narrative level. And I know you made the point about the split screen economy, just like, just once again, this is a podcast that kind of dealt with that post 2015 populist moment. You would just not, I, I would just struggle to imagine taking this narrative back to someone in the... 2010s and just basically saying like, yeah, we're going to look back on this as a champagne decade. Do you, did you have kind of that like cognitive dissonance at all? Maybe it's because politics is my primary area of focus and politics. Okay. That's probably it. Like finance feels very ordered and straightforward. It's politics that felt totally disordered during this period. No, it's absolutely right. And to the extent that there were sort of pricks of the 
financial optimism bubble. They came from the world of politics. Um, that said, the business world largely shrugged them off, right? The 2010s things that I imagine you're talking about, you're talking about a debt crisis in Europe, you're talking about a trade war with China, you're talking about a couple of political black swans with Brexit and and the election of Donald Trump, and you're none of it seemed to to matter. I mean, this it was long, it was always called the most hated rally in history, which is that it couldn't possibly continue. And yet it did. And it made a lot of uh, very sober-minded skeptics look very stupid for a long time. You know, going back to the comparison of the 2010s post-financial crisis period and then this post-COVID um, period, um, politically at least, a lot of disruption on the left and right has been driven by beef over how that post, you know, financial crisis period was handled. Bankers don't go to jail. Occupy Wall Street's basically pushed aside. Um, the Tea Party is pissed off over this, this, or that. It doesn't seem like there are any political movements or broad narrative takeaways related to the economic fi and financial side of the COVID response. So like, obviously, like there's masking stuff, there's lab lake debates, Dr. Fauci, like all those things. But those are much more in a culture war category as in, in contrast to how like, if you were to go over the list of complaints about the Obama administration's handling of that post-financial crisis period, they would say like, Dodd-Frank was too weak. This, 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 and that. How do you, is, is, is there a world where the decisions we made in 2020 to 2021 on the economic and financial side, six, seven years from now, we're going to look back and say, ooh, we missed something that's going to define maybe the 2032 election. Because that's how we now tell the story of that post-2008 period. No, exactly. I think some of this will take a little while to process. I mean, again, I'm not, I don't want to engage in like armchair psychology, but like yeah, I think there are, there is a lot of processing that needs to happen, both on sort of an intellectual and and academic front. And then, like, I don't know, I was I I was curious. You know, we didn't pick this publication window for any particular reason, other than that's when the book was done. But um, but you know, it's the and, when the, and when the paper was available, because the paper thing has been a disaster. Okay. Which is other oh, quick thing, quick thing for listeners. Like so many books that I wanted to have on the shelf just been delayed by months because there's a paper shortage in the industry. <laughs> There was. And actually, you know, it's, you know, it's a little, it's an interesting economic story well, to me anyway. We'll see if your readers. No, please. Yeah, please. But it was, it's basically two things. It was the supply chain, um, you know, foul ups of 2021 and 22, but actually there was a, an industry decision made 15, 20 years ago that no one was going to read paper books anymore, that everything was going to be electronic. Knows, and yeah. so they didn't reinvest in the in the mills and the binding facilities. Um, and yeah, talk about just like a, a, a forecast that just assumed something that turned out not to be true. People still, actually, I think hard copies in the same way that vinyl is having kind of like a weird nostalgic renaissance. So side note, but, but yeah, everything is an economic story if you look closely enough. Uh, what was the question? <laughs> so you're 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 you answering. No, it's the cost of interruptions. Um, you're answering. Uh, you know, something interesting about the publishing window of March 2023. Yeah, I think we have not like fully, like personally, emotionally, economically, academically, intellectually reckoned with what happened. Um, I do think the uh, I think the argument, if I'm playing this out, would be that <clears throat> the market crashed right? A lot of people sold at the bottom. And because uh, that, let me just say this is better, um, that the physical economy has had a fairly steady, slightly uneven, but fairly steady recovery for the last 18 months. 
right? The the GDP economy lost 30 something percent in the second quarter of 2020. It got 30 something percent back and then kind of made up made up the gap on um on economic output on uh and employment. Um but financial markets have had a very different ride, which is to say that um they have now hit new high after new high after new high and the value most of those gains accrue to a very small percentage of very wealthy people. So my guess would be that um you will see more economic inequality, you know, seven, eight years out. Interestingly, though, last year, 2022, was the first on record where the top 1% of Americans got poorer and the bottom 50% of Americans got richer. So, you know, there's some very confusing economic symbols um, coming out. I don't think, I don't know exactly where that, uh, sorry, this is a really rambling answer. I don't no, exactly know where that that sort of populist rage would come from. Like, yeah, everyone loves to hate the airlines, but like directly or indirectly, something like one in 12 Americans works for them. So um, I don't think you'll see, like, could that money have been better spent? Maybe. But then there's an argument on the other side that the government was writing checks to regular Americans long after it should have stopped. So I think one thing that I've kind of, just as an intellectual exercise, kind of run through in my head is if the pandemic was half as bad as it was, would would we be would we think about it differently? Which is to say, would you have really seen some companies that made it and some didn't? Would you have seen the government help some people and not others? Right. But because of the speed and and the extremity of it, they made a decision which I think ultimately is quite defensible, but explains where we are now. Which is there's a trade off between getting money out fast and getting it to the places it really needs to go, and they decided to get it out fast, which means that they overspent and they didn't means test. And some people got money that shouldn't have. But I think you could fairly make that argument both at the sort of fat cat corporate level and the sort of everyday uh, working American level. So I, I don't know. I'd be curious to see if those political narratives get sharpened in some way where this becomes the kind of origin myth of the next sort of political movement. Yeah, it's something for folks to take note of. So last few big things. So number one, I am curious um, when you're writing about this in March 2020, you're no longer in the office. What were companies you thought were going to be just totally screwed who ended up not getting screwed? And then what's a company that you thought was going to win that just didn't win? The first this, you don't have to, it, it could be, it could be a couple yeah. of, you don't have to, I, I said a singular, second. plural. Yeah. Um, well, I'll, just, I'll start by telling you a slightly funny story that explains this, which is the original title of the book. Um, or the original subtitle of the book, I think was something like Fortune and Failure in the Pandemic Economy, which has a nice ring to it. I yeah. liked it. My publisher liked it. And then sometime in like late 2020 or early 2021, I called my editor at at Crown and said, Paul, you know, like not a lot of failure as it turns out, <laughs> which is yeah. all the way of saying I had expected um, this to be much more of a bloodbath than it was. Um Oh, can I pause real quick? Because you just made me realize I made a huge fuck up. Um, small businesses where the failures would have been. Because I'm being very precise. Because it seems like that's 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 where we would see the difference, right? Like the local business that closes. Like, is, is how, how much of that plays into this? I mean, I do spend some time on the Paycheck Protection Program, which was, you know, paid the salaries of people who worked at small businesses. You know, that program, I think, has been sort of unfairly maligned um, in the you know year or two since it wrapped up. Like, yeah, there was a fair amount of fraud and um, 
you can argue it fits more broadly into the narrative that I think is mostly true, but obviously politically tinged, which is if you pay people not to work, you end up with people who don't want to work. Um, but in my view, it was a pretty well-designed government program. I mean, as I report in the book, the the economists at Treasury did some math and they said, we think it'll cost about $600 billion. It ended up being $575 billion. Incredibly well-administered, like, if, if your beef is that you don't think the government should just be sending people money that they don't have to give back, well, then fine. But I actually think it's a, a pretty, I think that one's going to go on the shelf um, and be part of a, a sort of crisis response playbook. You also have to remember that, like, you know, some businesses were shut down because their businesses didn't make sense anymore. But like the government was forcing people to stay home. It was not allowing you to run your business. And, you know, you're a foreign policy person and you understand that, like, it's in the heat of the moment. Sure. Yes. I think it was the right thing to do, but that's a state controlled economy and you end up in a very different political and economic discussion very quickly. And so uh, I don't think there was any uh, choice, but to, but to step in and backstop them. Um, yeah. Did I, yes, a lot went out of business fewer than you would think. Um, and if they did, it wasn't because they had to pay employees because the government was doing that. Um, so I think overall, like, one lesson coming out of the 2009 and 10 recession was it's it's hard to get people it's hard to restart an economy that sort of slowly kind of dwindled it is easier as we saw here when the rubber band snaps back to kind of br- build a bridge to get you over whatever that pick your letter your u or your v um your nike swoosh of a of a recession to just spend the money build a bridge to get there you know we can talk a little bit about airlines again but like Think about the travel hell that has been 2021 and 2022. Can you imagine how much worse that would have been had you had people in an incredibly regulated industry who'd gone off payroll, who lapsed in their training, who weren't getting enough flight hours, who weren't bidding on the right schedules? Um, I mean, I think uh, I think the decision to spend what was required to keep those gears moving as as well as they could is um, is one that's to be applauded. So last two here. So my first one is kind of a your opinion slash personal question. I'm interested in the juxtaposition between Airbnb and hotels because I'm not sure if you, you know, how online and Twitter you are, but there's been a lot of like Twitter discourse about, man, like Airbnb sucks now and actually hotels are great. And I ver- I actually am personally um, in that camp. Um, I've just entirely pivoted to hotels. It's very straightforward. I'm curious, where where do you come down on the hotel, Airbnb? How are the How is the industry basically standing question post-COVID? Um, it depends actually really, I think, on your view of the future of remote work, because that's mm. really the, um, you know, hotels make so much of their money on the business travel or similar to airlines, right? A lot of that, you know, setting aside, you may be staying in a, in a hotel versus an Airbnb when you go to New Orleans or whatever, um, you know, the question of our business executives on the road, um, or are they spending three months a year, I live in New York City, are they spending three months a year in the Catskills logged into their offices? And those are two, I think we don't, we genuinely don't know. Airbnb has clearly made a bet on the latter. Um, As I write kind of late in the book, they had uh, rolled out this work from anywhere sort of fellowship where they sort of let 12 people, I think, you know, do their jobs from wherever and stay at Airbnbs for free for a year. And the CEO, Brian Chesky himself, was kind of Airbnb hopping and ended up in some hilarious housing situations for a while. Um, or, you know, this tug of war that, you know, traditional white collar 
and tech companies are are having with their workers about butts and seats, I think is like really unclear where all that's going to land. Um, and if it ends up looking more like 2019, then I would bet on I bet on hotels over Airbnb. But I, I don't know. And that's actually a fun fun. It's an interesting place to be as a reporter because for a lot of 2010, like the 2010s. There weren't a lot of things that smart people disagreed on. There just wasn't a lot of room for debate because the market just went up. <laughs> um, and I think there's a lot of like real inflection points now that we genuinely don't know. And you can make a pretty good case for the world looking lots of different ways in 2020 and 2030. So we'll wrap where we begun. Began uh, resiliency is key. There's a trade-off: efficiency, resiliency. If a bunch of the rhetoric that you kind of used at the start is that we, in some ways, like improve the situations with the banks in you know the post two thousand eight world, but also certain bad practices may have come about again. To what degree are you optimistic or pessimistic about us learning the resiliency lessons, moving out of this crisis? Because I I think it's really well said from your point at the start. This isn't this is about COVID, but it shouldn't be treated solely as COVID. I would hope that a Ford executive who may not be listening to this podcast or reading the book is thinking, okay, if there's a Taiwan Straits crisis between now and 2027, man, we better French shore to Mexico by then, because that will be a complete disaster for the like American and global economy. What's your pessimism, optimism on the resiliency question? I'm sort of generally an optimistic person by nature, um, though probably less so on that. I mean, I think there's three things that I would sort of look for. If you have me back on in 10 years, we can talk about it. Um, <laughs> you know, one is uh, is um, sort of that traditional uh, business resiliency. So you mentioned sort of onshoring, reshoring, friendshoring. Clearly that's going to happen, but that takes a lot of time, right? We'll see where the, the U.S. chips money, the semiconductor money is clearly going to get spent building some domestic manufacturing capability there. But like Apple is going to be reliant on China for a long time. Um, so, you know, to what extent is that really baked into global supply chains is one. The other is what I would call sort of like money stuff. So like one lesson that we learned coming out of this that we continually learn and then forget is like you're never as liquid as you think. Liquidity is um, very valuable and you never have enough of it. Um, and so there's a question there of will you see, you know, something that was foisted on the banks, which is to say we want, we want you to put more of your money in things like cash and treasury bonds and less of it in like weird real estate stuff. Um, whether you'll see people voluntarily doing that for the reasons we discussed earlier, I kind of doubt it. The other is like, I, I get asked sometimes about the book, like what, what lessons you have for leadership? And I'm always like a little eye rolly and um, about that kind of stuff. But one, one takeaway that I had was make decisions, like make a lot of decisions. If you're a CEO, you're probably pretty good at your job, right? There's like some, you know, weeding mechanism that like smart people get to run these big companies. And I think one lesson was they made all these decisions incredibly quickly. They sort of threw out the, you know, these decisions at big companies for like who to buy your post-its from can just be like, you know, debated to death and put through a million strategy runs, make a lot of decisions. And they're not all going to be right. But like, if you bat 60-40, like over time, like that, that sort of dynamism accrues to like, you slowly um, sort of moving things in the right direction, and then you're building off better decisions. And um, so I think you'll see a nimbler kind of leadership come out of this. The other thing, though, and you know, I write in the book about this a little bit, every generation has sort of produced its own corporate 
archetype. So you had mm-hmm. coming out of the 20s and 30s, the first group that was really skilled in management science and the sort of rise of the MBA. And then they somehow got fat and happy and lazy in the 60s and 70s and built these huge conglomerates that got busted up in the 80s and 90s by corporate raiders and hedge funds. Um, 90s and 2000s, they merged and outsourced and kind of professionalized and became these larger than life figures like Jeff Bezos and Jamie Dimon and Bob Iger. Um, I think coming out of this, you will see um, CEOs that are nimbler, that don't quite aspire to sort of escape the business world entirely, but are really creatures of it. And you're starting to see that now, which is to say the culture wars that are kind of you know, squarely coming at business, I think are are very clearly an outgrowth of, of the pandemic. Where like you had this huge vacuum of public sector leadership and every CEO is secretly in their own head living this profiles and courage, you know, biopic. And they saw this opportunity, I think mostly for for fair reasons, to to lead, to be a leader. And they rushed into that void. And now boy do I think they regret it because they are right in the middle of these really thorny, slippery slope culture fights where they're expected to have an opinion and live their values. And like, God, they're just like, oh, I'm just trying to sell widgets. So I think um, I, I'll that's be fascinating. fascinated to see how that story plays out. Yeah, no, that's a, there's been a couple of places I want folks to double click on and check back in on. Liz, um, this has been really, really, really fun. Um, the book is Crash Landing, the inside story of how the world's biggest companies survived an economy on the brink. It is not about, um, what is it, uh, uh, failure and fortune. Uh, <laughs> the title has been changed. Um, I think that's that's a funny, I'm glad you told the story though. Like it's kind of like halfway through your thesis, you discover, hey, like that's actually just not the story here. Um, but that's an excellent place to leave it. Thank you for joining me on The Realignment. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something like this sort of mission or want to access our subscriber-exclusive Q&A, bonus episodes, and more, go to realignment.supercast.com and subscribe to our $5 a month, $50 a year, or $500 for a lifetime membership rates. See you all next time.